You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. podcast. I'm your host, Erica Lance. Our sponsor today is Skunk Brothers Spirits, coupon code DWA10. Get you in, veteran and family owned. My amazing co-host today is Danielle Orsino. Welcome. Don't forget. Don't forget to like and subscribe if you're listening because we love hearing your feedback. Awesome. Awesome. And for the second time on Drinking with Authors, our amazing guest is Rob Sanborn. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Okay, let's talk about what we're drinking. So I, again, was at the grocery store. We know how I like to do this. And I found another Angry Orchard hard fruit cider. This one is peach mango. I was super excited to locate this. That sounds good. Yeah, I haven't tried it yet. I'm going to try it live on air, but it seemed amazing. Here we go. And it is peach mango. It is very amazing and not too sweet, actually. Much cred to Angry Orchard for not... Just totally destroying it. Um, Danielle, what are you drinking today? Well, we're kind of twinsies, but not really. I'm, I'm going with my peach um, celestial seasonings, peach tea. I'm still trying to kick the, uh, the cough a little bit. So I'm in my little Rowan thermal mug. So it'll change colors as it cools down. That's exciting. Mm. I like it. I like it. Okay. Yeah. Rob, what are you drinking today? I am drinking, first of all, thank you very much for having me on your show. I am thrilled to be back here for a second time. I had a great time the first time, and I'm excited to be drinking with my fellow authors. Um, I am drinking something called Elkins uh, Colorado Winter Whiskey. So Elkins, I like supporting the local distilleries. I live in Colorado, I live in Denver, and um, Elkins is based, I believe, in Estes Park, which is where I bought this, which is at the base of uh, Rocky Mountain National Park. And uh, they have some great whiskeys, also great vodkas. This is actually a flavored one that I thought was really good for the approaching winter time, um, as we're kind of in the middle of fall here. And I do want to get Skunk Brothers as well. I actually have that on my list. And I am going to start off with a shot of it in my trusty... Drinking, drinking with, with swag. Woo! If, you, if you watch the YouTube, you guys get to see the swag. Anybody who's on the show gets our swag. Ooh, ooh, that is a that is a pretty hefty shot glass, don't you think? <laughs> it is. I love this. Yes. And um, we also have this cup. Ooh, more drinking without their swag. To go along with it. Yes. Yeah. But very cool. I'm a fancy drink, even though that's not a, that is a fancy cup. But I am going to be drinking from my. Fancy oh, you should do right from fancy. So I have a question. You said it was flavored. Please tell me with the flannel on it that it has cinnamon in it. It is cinnamony. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm going to have to try that. That sounds amazing. I'm a cinnamon addict. I uh, so, so am I. I love cinnamon. I don't know. Um, I'm, I always assume everybody has seen every single episode of Seinfeld. So I'm just going to say, I don't know if you remember this particular episode. But there's one where Jerry is talking about his love for cinnamon. He's like, it should be on every table right there with the salt and the pepper. <laughs> I don't remember that, but I actually agree. And if you're going to get Skunk Brothers, they have a cinnamon blueberry 
that I, it sounds weird saying cinnamon blueberry when they sent it to me I was like this is awkward this could be really bad or it could be amazing it was definitely one of those things where it was not going to be just kind of like eh. it was amazing that was the first Ooh. thing gone in my house cinnamon blueberry. yeah I don't drink too much flavored whiskey um but when there's cinnamon in it especially like with the fall or winter weather I'm down I agree okay so this is your second time being on the show so you have an announcement about a book too let's talk about that wait real quick you should tell everybody just in case they didn't catch the first one which if they didn't go back and listen to the first one but really brief what you write yes so my name is Rob Sanborn I am an author of dual timeline thrillers uh, the first book that I came out with was, is called The Prisoner of Paradise, which is this, which I just happen to have right next to me. And it is about an American couple who traveled to Venice, Italy. Um, and the husband comes to believe that his true soulmate is not his wife, but a woman who's been trapped in a Renaissance painting, the world's largest painting, actually, for about 450 years. And there are some secret societies, and he goes on this adventure to free her. Um, and it becomes this very cool quest um, that also goes back in time to uh, 1589. And that came out last year. And on October 25th, so a week from tomorrow, uh, the second book in the series called Painter of the Damned will be- Oh, I like that cover. That's nice. Yeah, he did a great job. Uh, David Ter Avanci, and I always butcher his name, but he's a phenomenal <laughs> designer. And I actually last month released um, a spin-off novella. So the, these two books take, they primarily take place in uh, the present day, but about maybe 30, 35% in the past. But I, because I can, I write in two different timelines, I can kind of like go off on these branches, which is pretty cool. So last month, I also released a spin-off novella called The Swordsman of Venice. I'm showing it to you on my phone because it's an ebook only. Oh, I like it. Cool. That's, That's nice very cool. I'm all about novellas. We talked about that on the last show. Just keep spinning the worlds. Spin the mm -hmm. worlds. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Yes. I like it. So two books, two years. That's pretty awesome. Because if I recall correctly, the first book took quite a while to get done. Correct? It did. Yeah. So my speed has increased dramatically. <laughs> I would say so. I would say so. So what was it like writing this, this second one? A lot faster, right. When we were talking, I think actually you may have introduced me to the concept of rapid releasing. I, I don't yeah. know if I, I was familiar with it before <laughs> that. Yeah, She's good like that. Rob. I'm good like that. Like more. Yeah, Let's like have that. some more. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. And um, <laughs> So um, now, yeah, so the first one probably took, it, it took a few years and then, you know, it took uh, probably about a year or two really to find my agent, maybe about a year. And then it took probably about a year for them to shop it around to publishers and get my publisher. And then everything was delayed by a year because of COVID, of course. Um, <laughs> the, first, the second one was just so much faster. First of all, I had a three book deal with my publisher, so we didn't have to deal with that. I had an agent, we didn't have to deal with that. Um, thank God we didn't have to deal with the COVID delays. And I wrote it in probably about a year, maybe even a little bit less. So just a much, much faster process all around. And right now I'm writing book three, which I'm hoping will take 
a total, I, yeah, I've been writing it, but I'm hoping it'll take a total of about six months to write. Very cool. Look at you speeding up. We talked about that and that's awesome. That's super exciting. Yeah. So um, what about spinoff novellas? Are there more, more in the works? Cause the little side stories, we talked about that. Gotta love the side stories. Yes, uh, there are more in the works. So this particular one, The Swordsman of Venice is part one. And um, I'm gonna continue that either for two or three parts. Yeah. And then if all goes well, I might pick another point in time and continue another vein out from that. And then also at the same time, I have an idea of basically taking one of the main, one or two of the main characters of the series and kind of going in a similar but different direction with it. I think that's a great idea. I think that especially as you develop fans and um, Danielle has how many books now um, out in your series? Um, five plus one novella and we're working on book six. Yes. So I'm, I met Danielle a little over a year and a half ago. Similarly, she was at one. So just an idea. It should be a <laughs> author motivational speaker. <laughs> Put some more books um, Danielle, what do you write? I write fantasy, epic high fantasy, but we're heading into urban fantasy horror kind of next after uh, book six. And that's what I was going to bring up is that she's doing books. It's not that the storyline doesn't continue and like your characters, a storyline can continue, but this is a switch to some other characters, but in almost a different vein. And that's, what's cool about it is you can, you can grab it and her books go from high fantasy to urban horror, which is really awesome and exciting to do stuff like that. But I'm so excited that your second book is out. So what would you say the differences are now for you? Because you had a speed, you thought you were going at that speed and now you have a new speed. What is that like? Yeah, well, I guess there's two sides of it. There's the publishing side and then the writing side. So the publishing side is pretty obvious as to why it's so much faster. But on the writing side, personally, I mean, I, I think it's just my, um, my craft and my skills have improved dramatically I would imagine it's kind of like anything you know um in any type of career you just get more used to it and you get better at it doing it you you know when I first started out so I come from a screenwriting background actually so not all but most of my writing education is that is in screenwriting which has its own unique challenges and obstacles and all that but the writing methodology of it is pretty different you know it's a lot closer maybe to poetry than it is to prose you're almost kind of writing down as if the film reel was going forward and you know you can literally have a, a one word sentence you know so it does have challenges where you, you don't want to necessarily do things um, and they're kind of like unwritten rules and not necessarily grammatical rules but at the, the flip side to that is you don't necessarily need to make sure every single sentence is grammatically per, uh, perfect. So um, so coming from, so I actually wrote The Prisoner of Paradise as the script originally. And it was optioned by a production company founded by DreamWorks execs, but it was never made into a movie. And then when the, uh, the rights reverted back to me, I decided to adapt it into a book with the brilliant idea of, yeah, I'll just knock it out and uh, have it done. And then I'll have the screenplay ready to go to make it into a movie. 
<laughs> oh, I think that's that's brilliant. Not a lot of authors have the option of having the screenplay because a lot of times things can get opted and it, it's having a screenplay opted from your book is very, very interesting because you get excited as an author. Me and Danielle have talked about this a little bit on the podcast before. Um, we haven't touched it very much though. You get excited as an author, but sometimes you have to go, wait a minute, why are they opting this and what else is out there that's similar? And are they opting to shelve? Because that happens sometimes yeah, they, they, they opt to shelves and go, <laughs> we have something like this or so, you know, we're going to put it on a shelf so nobody else goes and makes this epic thing, you know, that happens. That can happen. It's, it's true. Um, yeah, but the book had evolved organically. First of all, I never intended to write it as a series. It was always supposed to be a standalone. And any, for anybody watching, you can read this one as a standalone too. This is the second one. Um, but it e organically evolved into a series, which was a really cool process. So if I were ever to shop it around as a script, I would actually have to go back and completely rewrite it. Yeah, um, but getting back to your question. So when I first really delved into novel writing, I didn't know, you know, I knew, knew how to write, but there were certain nuances I think that you don't necessarily know unless you are, you know, you go to school as an English major or you are trained in, in writing and all that kind of stuff, which is like perspective and things like that and active writing. Um, so all those kind of little things that I had never learned that I needed to learn along the way. So because I knew all that going into book two and even the novella, that automatically improved my speed. So I was like, I didn't, yeah, I didn't have to go back and re and kind of trash half of it. No, and that's good. It's it. I think it's really you know people talk about and then they go right and then they get rid of it. And I just think to myself that you know that happens. All of us trash parts of things we've written because they seemed oh, yeah. epically brilliant at the time we decided to type them or write them out, and then we read them and we're like, what the f was I thinking at that time? Like. I don't even know what this, who's his character? It wasn't even in the book. Like, what am I doing mm -hmm. here? Um, that maybe happens to me when I've been drinking too much and I decide to write. I always think it's a great idea to have like a bottle of wine and go write. By the way, inner Erica, it's never a good idea. About a third of the bottle in, I'm good. But two thirds in and then the bottle, bah. We, we all want to, we all have our inner Hemingways. Oh yeah, no, epic stories that are, have nothing to do with whatever the work in progress I'm working on is. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting once you can start getting more into the rhythm and to your point, it's a honed skill where you get better at kind of knowing what the fluff is or the, you don't go down that path as much of writing something that you're going to end up throwing away. Like you start to know like, this isn't good at all you know yeah, you get better at both the craft and the content you know the actual specific techniques and skills of writing it's kind of like playing an instrument actually you know it's like once you learn how it's 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 a lot harder to write a song when you don't know how to play the instrument you know very true very true no i agree so um what uh, so where are we then because these two are published what are we working on right now so well this one still has a week and a week and a day to go 
<laughs> I know, but it's already done. It's in the can. I'm, I'm it's in the can, buddy. Right. So, so, <laughs> um, so I'm work now. I'm working on uh, two things. So okay. one is book three for that. That's exciting. Yes, and the other is a script. So I still am screenwriting, and um, a wonderful author named Laura Kemp, who has written this series called the Lantern Creek series, I don't know if you know her. Uh, her first book is called Evening in the Yellow Wood, and it's kind of like um, Americana, paranormal. Um, it's sort of um, a multi-genre book, but it takes place in Northern Michigan, and it's about the paranormal, but there's also like some romance in there too. And uh, she actually hired me to adapt her book into a screenplay, which I'm working on as well. And that's a really fun project. So how is that working with an author on it? Not her specifically, I do yes. know who she is. I've heard of her, but I think that is kind of fascinating because you're the author. So you working on your scripts, you, you're, you're the only audience that has to be like, this is the part of the story I want to tell. Because to your point, and I try to, anybody who doesn't understand the difference truly between screenwriting and writing, should pick up a screenplay yeah. to their favorite movie. Whatever that movie is, you can find them all over the place. Pick up the screenplay and read it. And you'll see, even if there's a lot of monologuing on a page, which some you know, stories have great monologuing or great conversations, there is yeah. probably a quarter of text on that page in comparison to what would be in a novel, even if there's mm -hmm. heavy monologuing, right? And it's usually about 120 minutes or so, give or take, if you're not Peter Jackson and making it like a 12-hour epic movie. Yeah. Um, and so you have to pick what parts of the story in the book that you're going to tell in the screenplay. Mm -hmm. And I kind of think a lot of authors don't think like that. So I would love for you to talk about for a minute what that's like, A, doing that, and B, working with an author whose precious little baby is that book you're about to, cut out. to drop down yeah i hear you those are fantastic questions and i i do think like kind of what you're saying i would highly recommend that any novelist at least you don't have to study screenwriting but at least kind of familiarize with it yourself with it because it is a different piece, but it's like a different way of looking at the same story. And especially a movie that was adapted from a book. The Lord of the Rings notwithstanding. <laughs> hey, I, you know what? Some argue that he made it better. I actually agree with them because I yeah. think- Oh yeah, I don't mean, I don't mean that. Yeah. I do actually- But I think it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a long one. <laughs> it's right. I was talking about the link. Yeah, there's yeah. tons of movies that, that I think are actually better than the books. But in that case, it's just so long. I, I, I meant more specifically about what you were talking about, how you have these very, very, very tight time constraints, especially if you're writing a spec script. Um, and for those in the audience who aren't familiar with that terminology, it means when you're writing, a, um, it's not like speculative fiction in books, but you're writing a, a movie based on speculation, which means that you're just writing it out and then you're, you're sending it out. So no one's hired you um, to write it, for example. Um, so it's very, it's a very interesting exercise to look at, to see what's been cut, right? Like what scenes have been cut, how those scenes in a book that might be a whole chapter has been condensed to maybe just two or three minutes. And a lot of novelists, when they look at, at the screenplays, they're like, my God, this is so short. But you know, when you're watching movies and TV, you don't necessarily realize it, but the average scene is only two minutes in length. So that's it which translates to only two pages. So it's like a page per minute, 
is a general rule of thumb. So it's a phenomenal exercise to know how to really weed out um, what you don't necessarily need, you know, like trim the fat. Um, so that's a pretty cool thing and that I would definitely recommend people doing. And by the way, one of the best writing classes that I have ever taken was an acting class. And that's for oh, both. Yeah. yeah, I've heard that. That's yeah, that's for both books and um, screenplays. And the reason why is because the actors look at the parts completely from the perspective of the character. And obviously, as writers, we try to do that. And you know, I'm not speaking for every single writer, but I don't really. I'm just kind of like, okay, what are they going to do? You know, I have my character studies and I know their paths. I know their traits and their personalities, but the actors talk about like really committing to the roles and the parts. You know, they need to become that person and commit. They're always talking about committing, committing, committing. And what is my motivation for every single scene? Like I'm committing to this role. What is my motivation as this particular person? And like they totally transform, you know, the best actors you can't even recognize when they're a different person. So it's, it made me think about the writing from that character's perspective a little bit more, you know, really talking, mm -hmm. thinking about like, what is their motivation and committing to that within each scene and then along the whole entire story arc. And then in terms of your, uh, to answer your second question, so Laura has been absolutely phenomenal to work with. Um, I could not have asked for a better writing partner and someone to adapt their book. She has been totally understanding of the need to change things. And it's been a really, really interesting process. This is the second book that I've adapted to a screenplay. The first was a a book that was written in like 1925 or something like that. So the author died decades ago and I could kind of, it's in the public domain and I could basically do what I want, but it was a fairly kind of linear story that I didn't really need to change that much. Um, I did change it actually quite a bit, but it, it wasn't uh, as challenging. So Laura's book is amazing and it's very challenging in the sense that I don't want to cut anything, but I need to. And I need to kind of shift stuff around. Like the book, for example, takes place over probably a period of maybe like three or four months. And the script is gonna take place over a period of about three or four days. And- Wow, no, that's a oh. huge difference. Yeah, so we have to like move things around, scenes and timing and all that. We're gonna have to cut characters because of that. So it's almost like doing major organ transplants and <laughs> open heart surgery, shifting those organs around and creating a new thing and sewing it all back up. But I think it's gonna Frankensteining be Frankensteining really that book. Do you see yes, that analogy? I did not, I specifically I like did not want to use that word because you know, you get this impression that it's going to be an ugly monster. It's not. It's going to be this. Listen, Frankenstein is a very reputable monster. He has been That's around true. a the very book, long the book time. Wise, yes, it's true. Talk about, actually, talk about differences from books to movies and stories. I mean, the book Frankenstein is dramatically different from pretty much any Frankenstein movie that's ever come out. No, I don't know. The one with, um, what is his name from Harry Potter? Daniel Radcliffe. Did you see that one? That one was pretty close, I think. No. Is that I, Frankenstein? That, no, that's the one with... Um, yeah. Um, no, I don't remember the name of it, but I could have sworn it, maybe it was him. 
but it's close. It's interesting you say that because taking it and doing that. So I haven't watched it yet, um, but I finished uh, the audiobook of Where the Crawdads Sing, which was, I really love the audiobook. I have way more time because I have to drive around doing stuff all the time to listen to audiobooks than unfortunately read. I wish I had more time for that. But, um, and I miss reading, but the audiobooks are good. And then somebody told me, um, and I'm no spoilers here, some of the stuff they changed. And I literally, a friend of mine was like, you got to tell me if it's good. And I can't bring myself to watch it because of what I was told was changed is the core of that particular story, right? Mm. And it's very interesting because I realized though, looking at it, a lot of that story is told as an inner monologue. Like it's told from her perspective of the world around her, right? And I think a lot of people don't realize you can sometimes have that come to bear, like the book and the TV show, You, which the TV show is very, very similar to the book, You, but that character's inner monologue, that's the entire book. If you've ever read You, which I, I really recommend you do, because it is one of the few books that is totally written from inside this guy's head. It is not told at all from any other character's perspective. And I'm not talking first person. I'm talking about literally how he perceives the world. So the actions that he does are completely through his lens. Mm. And most first person, even though it's being told from that person's point of view, the actions are occurring around them the way it's written. Even when I write from first person, it's not what my character's interpretation, but if you read or listen to you, the voice actor is amazing for that too it's just brilliant writing right even if you're not into horrors it's just brilliant writing because she's literally like every action the girl takes in it if you haven't seen you it's about a guy who is a stalker at the base minimum but probably could be defined way worse than that but I don't want to give it away if you haven't watched the show or read the book but he finds a girl that he likes but everything she does is he's like um, she's doing this thing, obviously, for this reason, like he puts the reasoning in his head, right? So that was done well. But then again, the entire show is filmed again, from his perspective and him monologuing over it. But you can't do that with movies all the time. You can't monologue. They were thinking this. And I think a lot of times as we as writers, we have inner monologue that's happening, hopefully not a ton, but we have it. And that inner monologue does not translate to the screen 99% oh. of the time. It's too much exposition. Yeah. You can't have a character that he looked at her, you know, she looked at him disdainfully thinking what a bastard he was. She literally has to go, you're a bastard. Yeah. Or just look disdainfully and hopefully the actress is good enough that the audience picks up on it. But you yeah. don't get... <laughs> He's a bastard of overriding. <laughs> if you can't film it, you can't put it on the page. Yeah, with exactly. Some, with I love some very, very, very rare exceptions, I should say. No, it's true. That's why I was giving that one rare exception. But again, the book, everything is, the show is told from him. You don't see the other people. You see his perception of what the other people did, right? Yeah. And that that's interesting. Cool. Okay, gonna we're going to take a quick, out. yeah, I would. It, I think it's amazing that they translated that well. I will say season two does not exactly follow the book. Uh, very loose. But if you read the book and then watch the season, you understand why. And there is no book three. So season three was just 
them games are throning that shit. So, you know, we don't have book seven. That's what happens. Um, but we will be right back with Drinking With Authors. What will you do when your child asks? What were Saturday morning cartoons? What were Saturday morning cartoons? What's wrong with you? Or will you handle it the right way? Sit down, baby girl. Let me introduce you to my friend, Mark McRae. Join Dan Clink and I on the Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast as we take a unique behind-the-scenes look at the history and dynamics of animation with plenty of laughs along the way. The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast is a proud member of the ESO Network. Our sponsor today on Drinking With Authors is Skunk Brothers Spirits. Skunk Brothers Spirits was started by a family of disabled veterans focused on locally sourced quality distilled spirits. Their name was inspired by their pops, who was nicknamed Skunk. Skunk's father was a moonshiner in Oregon back when it wasn't exactly legal. Now the brothers are taking the family business legal with their Washington-based team using their grandfather's Prohibition-era moonshine recipe to bring small batch spirits to the gorge and beyond. From the moonshine corn whiskey to the apple pie brandy, all of their spirits are handmade in Washington. Believing they already have the best ingredients in the local community, they work with local farmers and suppliers to produce the highest quality spirits from scratch. You can find them on Facebook at Skunk Brothers and on Twitter at Skunk Rose Inc. Or visit their site www.skunkbrothersspirits.com and use coupon code DWA10 at checkout to read 10% off your order. You can always also ask your local retailer to start stocking Skunk Brothers Spirits. Regardless of how you get your hands on a bottle or two, grab a drink and don't forget to get skunked. I have a screenwriting question for you. Okay. Oh, Danielle has a screenwriting I, that I started recording just as she said things and stuff. Danielle, my darling, please. I'm sorry. I just have a question because of as I'm writing, I I had to write a um a pilot for for my book, and my biggest thing was exposition. That was like you know it was hard for me with that. And um, they asked me to add a character that came in later in the book. And oh, can you introduce him earlier? Could we you know? So once again, I was probably Frankensteining some things. What happens uh, when you're writing a screenplay and you have to do that for an author and go back and say? oh, we're going to take this character or we're going to add a totally new character. Have you had that happen before? And what's the author's reaction been? Yeah, um, I have done that on multiple occasions, actually, in both projects of the adaptations. And I would say that probably adapting exposition from a book into a script is one of the trickiest parts. So that, and of course, the timing of it and condensing everything into, and by the way, 120 pages is kind of on the long side. We're shooting for this particular genre, um, ideally like 112. And honestly, at this point, it's like every page counts. And right now I'm probably like at 140. So I need to do some serious slicing and dicing. And part of it is to do exactly what you're talking about. You might have to introduce people earlier. You might have to combine characters. You might have to combine scenes or move locations, uh, things like that. And so uh, the author whose book I'm adapting, Laura Kemp, again, she's been totally wonderful and understanding about all of this. She just wanna make sure that the core story is there, which it is. 
and um, you know the main characters are there, which they are. Um, we're not removing any of them or anything like that. And this is also uh, the first of a series. She, so she wants to make sure that anything in the first script wouldn't necessarily affect any sequels. Um, but otherwise she's been completely open, which is fantastic and makes my life a lot easier. How does this affect as you're writing now, now looking at it from an author, now you have your own book. So are you looking at the screen adaptation and working with another author a little differently with maybe either more sensitivity or renewed eyes? Um, I mean, in terms of my writing my own books, well, just now that you're an author and that you have your babies now, you know, okay, you adapt, you have your books oh. and now you're working with an author. So do you have a different perspective a little bit? Oh, are you saying like, am I a little bit more sensitive to her? Yeah, or just, yeah, just in general, are um, you looking at it just a little differently or are you kind of going in with the same scalpel? Like, nope, this is going, this is going. Honestly, I'm, I'm kind of going in with the same scalpel. Like I wouldn't want to change any of the core story anyway. <laughs> of course. Any of the characters. But I think the way I'm looking at it with that scalpel is how to actually bring that core story and the main characters out. Okay. And, you know, so unfortunately, if there is like a, a C or D storyline, that may need to be cut. And actually, we already have cut it. And I, I talk with her about, it. you know, if there's mm -hmm. something big, like a whole kind of side storyline, I'm like, are you okay if we cut this? And she's like, yeah. You know, uh, you got to kill your darlings. So I would say, to be honest, I'm not really that much more sensitive because it just needs to be done. You know, you kind of have to have that surgeon approach. Um, and then, but with my own work, you know, I've been screenwriting for a pretty long time, but this particular project has made me kind of look at trimming the fat even more. Um, so I actually outlined book two and book three together. Um, but I think with book three now, I'm making it even kind of just like more of like a, a page turner. Like all, I do think all my books are page turners, but um, they're kind of getting even more into that without sacrificing that inner monologue that you need in books. Mm -hmm. In fact, actually going back to one of your earlier questions, Erica. So with my first draft, my agents told me that like, yeah, it reads too much like the screenplay. You know, you need more nonverbal cues and inner monologue and body language and things like that. So I think I've gotten pretty good at that balance. So, but it, it's a pretty cool exercise to look at the screenwriting style of it. No, totally. It's interesting because you saying that brought to mind, I was talking to somebody the other day about screenwriting and I've, I've done screenwriting and I've done playwriting, not as much as you, but I've written plays, even short ones that have done live. Right. And I was, you know, recently I was writing a fight scene that was in a book and it was just like a fist fight scene. It wasn't like, you know, epic swords and I didn't have to have a bunch of dolls to figure out. So they didn't have 12 arms. Um, but I realized if I was, as I was typing it, I'm like, if I was watching this, this would be much more impactful, right? The actual violence in front of the screen mm -hmm. of the punching and the kicking and, you know, all of that stuff that happens versus when you're trying to convey that level of suddenness or violence, it's not in the action that's being taken to me. It's in 
the other stuff around it. How is the character feeling about right. that? How did that impact? They didn't see it coming. You know, like you almost have to- The pain that they actually that. feel. That yeah, you're not relying on an actor's expressions to convey, but you're actually getting into someone's head. And it's interesting because, you know, we always talk about how, you know, the books are better than the movies. And I think a lot of times the books can be better because you're not on a shortened story. Like you have the whole world that has been opened up to you versus I'm going to tell you this one tale about this thing. And, mm. you know, you, you briefly touched on it. I love that we're talking about screenplays here. So hopefully you don't mind, but this is very rarely do we talk to screenplay people. But I think one of the things that's interesting is you talked about taking a character and having it be in an amalgamation of multiple characters, right? And I think some people get frustrated that they don't see the character that they most bond with. And I'm gonna mm. go back to our original thing, like Arwen in Lord of the Rings has a very different role in the books than she does in the movie that Peter Jackson did, right? Not only that, there are not a lot of females in those books. Just for the record, if you go, go read those books, there are not teeming with female characters no, by any like stretch of the imagination, yeah. right? So, you know, it's interesting because I heard a lot of Tolkien fans were not as thrilled with what they did with Arwen, for instance, as what they needed. But if you look back and look at the movie, you go, this needed to happen. She needed to be a part for this to have Aragorn have his journey the way he has it. Because yeah. she acted as this plot twist point like four times in the book and even for Frodo and stuff. Like she, that's what she was like put there. Hi, I'm going to help move this story along by this little scene I'm in and this action I'm taking, you know? So it's interesting that you were talking about that and how, how do you do that without completely losing that character that everybody fell in love with, that side character. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. I mean, really, you know, you're telling the same story in two different ways. And if you think about it, oftentimes there's 500 ways to tell a story, right? It's just like, what's the best for that particular medium, you know? And if you're going to do a play, it would be different as well. I'm sure the, there's probably going to be a Lord of the Rings play. <laughs> Um, musical play. They would have a hard time with that. That would be a lot of set decoration. There are some things that you just go, okay. that would be a lot of set decoration. Love it. To fill that off. Yeah. Yeah. No, I also think it's different when you do plays and there's a live component versus you're seeing a component, right? Because yeah. I think having been an actor um, on plays and musicals and stuff like that many moons ago, but and written plays versus screenplays, there is definitely a show me thing, but the actors can convey an emotion that can wash over the crowd if they're good actors. Yeah. It is different. I mean, you can still see it on screen and people who are actors on screen do brilliantly, but it's very different when you can feel that tenseness or feel the totally. fear or the love or whatever live and in person. Yeah, of course. And the other interesting thing about um, plays is that you only have it from one view, from one angle, right? Like you can, with a book, you can go, you know, 360 degrees and in different universes or whatever, planes of dimension, literally anything you could possibly think of. Um, with a movie and TV show, it's not exactly to that point, 
but because you can't get inner monologue necessarily unless you're actually kind of doing sort of can, I guess. But with a play, you really can only see it from one angle, right? You can't go behind or above or anything like that. So you have to work your story and the way you're telling your story from that perspective. Yeah, yeah. The, one of the funnest things I ever got to do, and they do it every year, it's in Tampa. There's a, a literary organization called Wordier Than Thou. It's actually how this entire podcast, which started as a live event, began. But they do a thing called Read No More. And they do little plays that in a live haunted house that you walk through. So unlike a haunted house where you jump scares, they do live plays. And writing awesome. live plays where people are standing in front of you um i remember the first time i did it and i'll tell you it is a very different situation because it's a house they do this in a house they did it during covid at a camp it was like an 80s sleepaway camp kind of you know jason thing where there was enough distance between humans that they could do it but the first one i wrote i actually had a bunch of teenage actors that came in and did this entire play and i'll tell you it was very interesting writing when the audience is going to be standing less than five feet from your actors in mm -hmm. a room mine was a kitchen at the time interacting with them it's a different writing style and a different like show me you know and how do you how do you do that and how do you convey it you know totally yeah and they didn't have a lot of room to move this was a galley kitchen it was only so it wasn't like they could storm across the stage to prove a point they had like three feet you know and i i think thinking about the different ways that you can possibly tell a story makes you a better writer regardless of what medium you are right. telling that story you know if you look at other things like comic books or graphic novels you can tell the same story in a different kind of visual way in that sense or um you know, radio shows, I guess, you know, most audiobooks are narrations, but I don't know if you've listened to like the Sandman audiobooks. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, they're like old timey radio shows. And I think they're light years better than the show. That's my personal opinion. You, about you know what, though, I will say, and it's funny you say that, because I read the Sandman comics. Uh, one of the other hosts, Jen, is avid Sandman fan. If you see her, she has Sandman crap behind her all over her shelves when she's on the podcast. But <laughs> one of the things I thought was interesting is in the Sandman, there's so many time jumps back and forth and universe jumps that if you are <clears throat> not familiar with it, my boyfriend, one of the things he said was, this is hard to keep track of. And then we watched the show and he was like, this is very, very cool because he could associate a visual right. with the movement. So if you're not, it's kind of a thing to me where if you are not familiar with Sandman and how it works or anything about it, I could see, even though the audio drama was done completely well, which was not an audiobook. I want to clarify that because I have so many authors that are like, I want something like that. I'm like, that is an audio drama, not an audiobook. But yeah. um, you have a it, cast of like 20 people and yeah, was, sound effects. Yeah. We cannot get Professor X. The Sorry. dramatic That's, reading. Yeah. Um, but what was interesting is he, because it was time jumping, it was, and unless you just sit down and listen to it, you can lose where the hell you are in the you time. Can. Yeah. 
because yeah i had i was not like i had read a few of the comics and graphic novels but um i didn't read like all of them so i was i was familiar enough with it but i think think you needed to have some familiarity with the source material in order to catch on yeah but i think those audio dramas are probably the best i've ever heard Um, well they're also probably millions and millions of dollars worth of audio because they uh, cast that i love the cast don't get me wrong but it's to go to make something like that i think is brilliant but that brings another point when it comes to screenplay is casting Mm -hmm. so people when they read a book even if you describe a character right unlike danielle's books where you can kind of see them behind her but she takes pictures she's on the cover of all of her books because she they get fin fantasticalized that's not a word whatever the correct that's a word now it's a word now write that down it's a word now but you can have some visuals on characters but a lot of characters even if they're described you have an idea in your head what you think they look like Mm -hmm. right and i'm only going to go back to the sandman because people um uh when the cast came out from the sandman there were so many like freaking uproars about certain parts of the yeah. casting yeah. of the sandman right so silly because also like, he appears as different people ex- exactly but i was i thought he was i thought it was brilliantly cast if you guys watch the sandman on hbo the entire um serial convention was probably one of the most brilliant episodes of tv i have ever Loved watched it. in my life i like that episode but i like i think the um physically the main guy i thought fit the part but i just found him to be dreadfully boring but you know when i when i listened to it the fact of the matter is he you know because i went back and listened to a couple episodes of the audio drama and sandman is not that riveting he's a very monotone character like um death probably has some of the most person death and desire have some of the most personality of the things it's almost the people around him and i thought it's true you know, he he's, does he's kind of like just James walking McAvoy. through that's his name is that his name right professor x that played him James on the audio McAvoy. James McAvoy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay i said it right same thing go listen to him again it's very monotone flat i will he's flat I, w- I would just check it out because that character is so stoic. Like I got to use that word properly. The character is just generally so stoic until he gets mad about yeah. something. He's very and, much an observer kind of meandering through time. Yeah. That's true. But I think it's but interesting. that's kind of part of his motivation too. It is. Yeah. You know, it's like not- he's had it taken away. Yeah. He- yeah exactly he's he's in prison for 75 years yeah Yeah. because casting ends up being an argument for so many people who love books and then the casting is done i think a lot of people don't realize by um directors and studio executive producers a lot of times have feedback onto who gets cast in a particular movie or show and by the way if anyone's wondering what the producers actually do is they give all the monies in case you're wondering where the monies come from you see the words executive producer they gave a lot of the monies yeah the executive producer does the money but the other producers they also put all the parts together 
It's true. I'm not saying they don't do anything, but in case you're wondering where like the money comes from, it's yeah, usually the producers. The authors don't have a say unless they put money back in, which is what Deborah Harkness did for um, Discovery of Witches. She put a certain portion back of her of what she got paid back into the production company. And that's how she got some say in casting. And she later went on to say, I wish I didn't put so much uh, emphasis on casting because she, she had a certain, um, she had her actors in mind to play Matthew and Diana. And then she saw the scene, one of the first scenes where Matthew's introduced with the trench coat. And she said, oh my God, I should not have, like, she said he looked ridiculous, you know, because Matthew has a very specific build and whatnot. And she's like, I was so focused on casting that she's like, I should have went back and thought, should I have a say in wardrobe? Should I have a say in this or that? She's like, because I was so focused on these other things that probably weren't as relevant. She's like, I, I got caught up in the minutia and that's maybe not where I should have put it. But, yeah, I don't you know, know if she made the right choices. I haven't been fortunate enough to be in that position, but I do think that it makes sense for writers to basically step back and let the people who are the professionals in those particular roles do their jobs. Yeah. Well, I think it's true because I think, it, I think yeah. a lot of people don't think about, like, we could sit here, all of us, and take one of our books and cast the book, right? But the problem is, really you should choose one character that you have a certain attention on maybe cast that because you have no idea what the chemistry of actors and stuff like that is That's like great point. And you can cast you could be like i want you know james mcelroy to be this person and blah to be this person and they may have zero chemistry yeah. so it's like you insisted that they do that and it doesn't end up being a good movie because they can't convey the characters and the story that you want it conveyed because they can't do that mm -hmm. you know well or you like the look of someone this is something it's, that's talked about a lot this person yes. looks like the character right cool but can they convey the character can can they know? embody them can they just and sometimes it's the modality you might think you want a series or a movie or live action maybe it should be done in anime Maybe you're taking it to a, you know, you haven't thought about it in a different way. Yeah. Maybe it should be done, in, you know, maybe you should put a little twist to it and make it, you know, think about it from an anime standpoint or something different. And because then you might have a better chance of getting even different actors from a voice perspective. And, and some, sometimes you just have to take a step back and kind of flip the picture and totally. look at it differently. The so, uh, the last movie I saw was Sonic the Hedgehog 2. <laughs> there you go. My daughter, um, we're both fans of Sonic 1. It was great. And so we saw Sonic 2 on Friday. And the whole time, have either of you seen either of those? I heard the story no, about John Ralphio got cast. Yeah, I did see Pikachu. Uh, uh, Pikachu Detective, I think, is actually really funny, too. Um, so they're both, so Sonic 1 and 2 are hilarious, but in Sonic 2, there's like this kind of bad, you know, um, hedgehoggy guy, like little alien who's like this kind of orange thing called Knuckles. And he's just like, he's like this, he's the muscles of this world. And he just like goes around like beating things up and destroying stuff. 
and he talks like this, like he's not a very smart alien. And the whole time I'm like, God, that voice sort of sounds familiar, but I can't place it. And I couldn't get it. So I finally looked it up and it was Idris Elba. <laughs> I would never have guessed that. Never would have guessed that. So I think a lot of like, people didn't figure out that Ryan Reynolds was Pikachu. Yeah. Like, and there's, I, I think there's been several things like that where you don't really like back rocket. Bradley Rocket Raccoon, Bradley Cooper. Right. Like, how yeah. the hell would you have ever guessed that? Right. And these are extreme examples, but I think the point is made. Like, you know, you would never in a million years think of any of those as your as your people to like portray those particular characters. Yet mm -hmm. the casting agents are like, yeah, these are gonna be like perfect for all of them. Well, that and what's fun is some of them are fans and want to do it. Like they yeah. hear about it and you go. They want to do it, which I'm I'm going to try to save this. I got a question for literary briefs around this, but I'm going to save it hopefully and remember it. But Danielle, remind me when I don't remember it because you're not drinking. Got it. Drinking. Um, got it. So, but I think, you know, I think it's fascinating. So book three is on its way. When do you intend to release book three, my friend? So book three will probably be in the fall of 2023. So about a year from now. That's exciting. That's very exciting. But the second novella should come out um, around the spring or early summer. So, you know, we talked about people's reaction to the first book. Um, newsletter fan-wise, have you heard anything about the excitement of having book two come? Yeah, actually, it's been phenomenal. Um, so I, I mentioned that, just wondering, that's why, because I mentioned it. Go ahead, continue. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not Danielle Steele, um, looks wise, but um, people have been, you know, I've been very fortunate that a lot of people have really liked the first book. And uh, so they've been very, very excited about the second book. And the first book can be read as a standalone, but you get the sense that the story could continue. So a lot of people have been pretty uh, excited about that. I've been getting messages and things. And um, so, you know, it's coming out a week. So the marketing has been has been building up. And then this week is going to be a lot more uh, for the release next Tuesday. And then what about the novella? What has the feedback been on the novella? People have loved the novella as well. Um, so it was sort of an experiment for me. You know, I didn't really know what was gonna happen with it, but the, the feedback has been great. Um, people really love it. So the novella is entirely historical fiction. Um, it's short, it's only 150 pages. So it's a very, very quick read. And uh, everyone who's read it has loved it, which is great. That's very, very cool. I'm excited for you, all these things. Cause when last we talked, it was just the one and you know all of that stuff. So I'm super excited because I think a lot of authors, because we don't always hear from our fans, right, um, don't realize the impact we're having and how, how much people want more. They want more of it. They like the voice. They like the story. They want to hear more from the author in it. And I think we can get trapped in a void a little bit of silence. That's just us going, you know, I hear a lot of authors talk about imposter syndrome where they go, am I good enough? Is there enough people liking my book? Should I really keep doing this? Is this a good mm -hmm. enough story? Like, 
you can imposter syndrome yourself to death, not realizing that, yes, there are fans. The second you go, oh, hey, we have another one. They're like, really? Yay. And can get super excited, especially if you don't wait too long to put it out, because I think that can, you know, create a certain effect in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's also the writing speed. But I do, as, as amazing as my first book is, I actually do think that the second book is even better. It's, it's going to be. The fact is, is I, I, I was actually having this discussion, may have been on the podcast, but the other day I had an author ask me, and I brought this up, and it's a little piece of writing advice before shameless self-promotion. And Danielle, I'm going to let you have the last question after I pontificate for a moment here. But Yes, ma'am. The thing is, is that literally from when you start your second book to when you finish your second book, you're already a better writer than what you were at the start of the second book. And I think this is what can trap people into rewriting and rewriting and rewriting a manuscript is, listen, the moment you put words on a piece of paper, you're going to be a better author than you were before you put those words on a piece of paper. So yes, I can tell you, Rob, because we're going to have you on this podcast more as you keep from, you know, producing and stuff like that. So encouragement, if any, for doing that, but, you know, by book five, six, 10, you're going to be a way better writer than book one. And trust me, when you look at book one, you're going to be like, I should rewrite this, but you shouldn't because you're always going to be a better writer at the end. And if you, if you know that and you just keep writing, you're going to get better, and better at it. You're going to find all the little things. I'm already doing that. So the audiobook for The Prisoner of Paradise came out in August. And um, first of all, talk about audiobooks. The narrator for The Prisoner of Paradise did such an incredible job. He, and I'm saying this from a non-biased perspective. I listen to a lot of audiobooks like you. It's just a time thing. So I'm always listening to one and reading one, you know, but like walking the dog, going on, you know, riding in the car, whatever. Um, I'm listening to an audiobook. So I listen to a ton of them. And his narration is one of the best I've ever heard because, you know, like I said, the book takes place in different timelines, it takes place in Italy. So there's multiple uh, nationalities, all sorts of ages and genders and everything. And he nailed it all. Um, so he who is your narrator let's do a little shameless plug for him his name is Zach Alamon and he's with uh, Tantor Media so the audiobook is phenomenal and but when I was listening to it um, there were times when I was listening to like to you know I'm listening to it from a different perspective like listening to the writing of it right so I was thinking man I should have written that sentence better No, it's, it's funny. So I had an author that was listening to her audiobook and wrote me this frantic email that said the timeline is messed up. And I realized it by hearing it, that it wasn't caught by editing or anything. It's not huge for the record. When she showed it to me, I was like, you know, nobody's going to see this, right? Like you saw it because you are so like, you're in bed with this story. You're in your jammies, however you go to sleep at night or not, you know, some of us, and you're in bed with this story. You know, this story, like the back of your hand, you know, the sounds it makes, what it smells like, what it tastes like, you know, this story. And I think as authors, it's good to listen to your audiobooks, but it can be very, very difficult if you cannot separate yourself from, again, you were a different writer now because now you've written even more stuff 
this was written back here and you can't, it's not like you can wave a magic wand and fix everything. We do hear stuff. And I know when we read books out loud or somebody wants us to come read and you read from the first book and you're like, I'm going to pick the chapter that I like because there's stuff in chapters three and five that just drive me nuts. So I'll read seven. <laughs> mm -hmm. We yep. can be our worst critic critics listening but because that glacier is in our head, no one else will hear these things that we have a problem listening to and going, oh my goodness. Like, you know. We're, yeah, we are our own worst critics. Yeah. Physically. We really truly are. It's crazy. I okay, always Danielle? have the computer. Yeah, before I, I actually have the computer read to me, you know, before I send it off to an edit. And I think it's really important to listen and also read out loud. Oh, reading out loud or having somebody read it to you. So <laughs> fun story. This is a tip I tell a lot of authors. I'm like, I don't care who it is. It can be your kid. It can be your significant other. It can be a best friend. Have Even if they just read a chapter, just have somebody read it to you. Close your eyes while they're reading it to you. Don't look at them. Mm -hmm. Close your eyes and go, okay, wait, that doesn't make sense. Because that's when you're going to hear it. You're not even going to hear it necessarily when you read it to yourself. Again, Glacier, you know what's supposed to be there. It's kind of like the self-editing. You're like, oh, that's on that page. I know I put it there or you put way too much of it there. But if you have somebody else, you close your eyes, totally different voice. You could have your daughter hand her the book and read it to you. And you'd go, oh, that's weird. Yep, need to change. I read it out loud to somebody. Yeah, I read it out loud. And that's how I get it. And I'm just like, just sit and listen and I'll read it. And then as I'm reading it, I'll go, oh crap, I got to put a, yeah, like that's how, and then, cause then, and then the, I had a friend do it and he was like, he looked at me, he goes, that makes no sense at all. And I'm like, no, it totally, and then I start, and then the minute I have to start explaining it, he stops and he goes, if you have to start explaining it to me, he's like, either you need to write that, whatever you're about to explain needs to go in the book or you need to cut that. And I'm like, good point. Yeah, Never mind. exactly. You can't argue with your readers. Yeah. Are you yep. both familiar with Saul Stein? No, I'm not. I, Erica, it, are you? It's ringing a bell, but it's my drunk post-it gnome is not funny. He died so. probably about 20 years ago, but he was an author, agent, publisher, and editor. And he wrote a book called Stein on Writing. Um, and he edited- like, My editors brought the, that up. Yep. Yeah, he edited like some of the biggest authors like in literary history and was an agent and stuff. And he also was a writer himself. Um, so Stein on Writing is a phenomenal book about writing. And one of the things that he recommends is not only reading things out loud or having someone read to you, but when you do it, read in as monotone a voice as possible. Yes, because when people said. are reading, most of the time in their heads, it's kind of just like this sort of quick monotone voice, right? So you need to know and make sure that the emotion that you want to convey or whatever from just the words is coming out. I've done that, but I've also, from doing an audio book as well, I have now changed the inflections because that's what I learned. After I listened to my own audio book, I'm like, oh, the actor took it in a totally different direction than I would have. I'm like, interesting. So now I read the lines like, I try to read them in three different ways, three different emotions. The one, the way I intended it, I intend it to come across. Mm -hmm. And then I try to go back and say, how else will this come across yeah. and read it? Because after hearing the audiobook, I was like, 
didn't expect it to go like they'll kind of if there's no direction they'll whisper it or they'll and i'm like should i put a direction totally. on how i want this to go this goes back to what we were saying before there's all these different ways of not only telling a story but even saying a line i was actually going over this with my daughter my seven-year-old daughter just the other day about acting we were taking like one sentence that was maybe like six words and reading it with different emphasis on the different words and how yep, to say exactly. it right it's just like it could be a completely different meaning um no yep. it's, it's true and it's funny because when you talk about narrators and giving them direction and pronunciation and stuff like that however they're reading it is probably how your readers are reading it as right. well you're not a hundred percent of the time, but probably 90% of the time. Yeah. That's how the reader, it's kind of the whole thing about when you send an email or a text message only about what do they say? 10% of the emotion gets conveyed that you truly want to convey. That's like, why you need emojis. Yeah. And that's, it's funny because, you know, my, my dad was a victim of this dad. If you're listening, just, I love you so much in my heart, but he would type all caps in emails. I'm sure all of us have parental units that have done a similar thing. Where it, yeah. And I'm like, dad, it means you're yelling. He's like, no, it doesn't. I'm just, I just, that way I'm typing. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Let me just explain etiquette. It means you're yelling at us in your email. And he's like, but I'm not yelling. And I'm like, cool, but you are. And he, you know, he doesn't realize that sometimes like I could say, you know, a brief, no, I don't like that idea. And people could be like, oh my God, she didn't like the idea. She hates it. She hates me. No, I just didn't like that idea. But if you, if you're not careful on how you say things, it can come across like that, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to start putting emojis into my books. I actually have one of my books has emojis because it has text messages in it. So it has emojis in the book. Very proud of that. It's because nothing gone. makes something crystal clear like a little yellow smiley face. Yes. Well, it's right with the world. Yeah. But Erica, okay, what you, know, you just you said was actually question. quite reassuring. Yeah. About like how, you know, however the net audiobook narrator is reading something is probably how someone else is going to read it because as incredible as Zach Alamon is um there, I think there were maybe two words that he mispronounced literally out of a hundred thousand but again always is um <laughs> the author and those two words is like Ugh. but you're right other people aren't going to be reading it that way so it's perfectly okay and I'll tell you nobody's listening going oh he mispronounced that like very few other people get the audiobook and have read the actual book in such close proximity. And people don't, I think for the most part, you can email me if you do this, totally drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com. Take the audiobook, I mean the book and read along with the audiobook. I don't know anybody who does that. I have. I but not 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 at the same time. I've switched off. No, yeah, I, I've that. read the book and stuff, but you don't like sit there and go, did they say this correctly? Did they say this? Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, no, like no. no. No, and I don't even mean like doing both. Like I've done it by like chapters and, and yeah. Amazon has uh, that feature, which is pretty cool. But you're right. No one's like reading it while listening. Yeah. Although, you know, this is not that, but um, I think I got like a star knocked off of a review because this woman didn't like the fact that I used one particular word twice in uh, my book out of a hundred thousand Oh my gosh. Service was excellent. Food was great. 
my lime and my Moscow mule is not as fresh as it could be one star. Exactly. I've talked about that so many times. Yep. I love that Yelp review because it is the epitome of online reviews. Yep. Keyboard um, balls. Yeah. 100%. Exactly. Okay, Danielle, ask your final question. We're running over. This is all your fault. Oh, I'm Make sorry. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. What is the most that you've learned between, uh, as a writer between book one and book two about yourself? about myself, um, yeah. that I can be, and uh, that there's, you know, that there's always room for improvement, that you can never stop learning. And it, there two, I'm gonna do two things, sorry, but they're connected. One is that you can never stop learning and you, there's always room for improvement, but also that this whole entire process and business is a marathon you know, and it's a mountain to climb and you cannot expect to reach the summit the very first time you, you kind of run out of the gate. Good answer. I, I like, like that. that. Okay. Shameless self-promotion time. Pick that book back up. Let's talk about it and where yes. to find you. So again, my name is Rob Sanborn and this is the first book, The Prisoner of Paradise. And this is the second book coming out next Tuesday, Painter of the Damned. The novella that is out now is called The Swordsman of Venice. And um, so The Swordsman of Venice is only available on Amazon, but The Prisoner of Paradise and Painter of the Damned are available uh, everywhere and or will be. And uh, for my social media, first of all, my website is robsamborn.com. And by the way, I know previously, maybe like a week ago or something, you had uh, somebody on your show uh, named uh, Wendy Samford, I think. And she was talking about the spelling of her name. It's almost identical. <laughs> so S-A-M-B-O-R-N, B-O-R-N. And uh, so my website's robsamborn.com, which is also pretty much all of my handles on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, you name it. And I think that's it. Wonderful. Well, we are so glad you came back on the show with us. It's so much fun having you here. Well, Erica, it has been a blast. I absolutely love talking and drinking with you. Danielle, you as well. It's been wonderful meeting you. Um, I look forward to both of your projects as well. So Danielle, actually, you were going to quickly tell us about your work, right? I know we're running over, but I think- Okay, this has turned into shameless self-promotion about you, Danielle. Go. Birth of the Fae series, catch it everywhere. You can catch me on birthofthefae.com and that's it for me because I know Erica's going to shoot me if we go any longer. Exactly. Yeah, I know that only face. people on YouTube saw that. That's okay. Yeah. No, this has been Drinking with Authors, guys. I've been your host, Erica Lance. My amazing, oh, our sponsor today has been Skunk Brother Spirits, coupon code DWA10. Check them out. My amazing co-host has been Danielle Orsino. Please like and subscribe and give us a little feedback because now you've been drinking and those keyboard balls have finally kicked in so you can tell us what you really think. Yes, and it better all be good because we've had Rob Sanborn and he is amazing and we will catch you guys next time. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network. Your station for all things geek.